for our scripture reading. It's, in, it's found in Romans 12, 1 to 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, good morning, Ogletown. I like that. Uh, it's a joy to be back with you guys. We were here a couple weeks ago and got to meet many of you. And uh, after our introduction, I was asking my kids, hey, how did I do introducing you guys? And our middle daughter, Caitlin, looks at me and says, Dad, you forgot to tell him I want to be a princess. <laughs> I didn't know how to respond. And if this all works out, I will be leaning on some of you to uh, help me to teach her that if she puts her trust in Jesus, she will be an heir to far more than that, a kingdom that is in heaven. Uh, rightly responding to what's in front of you is a valuable skill in life. Wrongly responding to what's in front of you can lead to trouble. We see this all over the place. It shows up in classrooms and boardrooms. It's helpful on first dates and at final deadlines. Organizations pay millions of dollars for consultants. Teams watch hundreds of hours of game film. Governments create entire intelligence communities to be able to be prepared and rightly respond to what they face in front of them. Praise is broadcast far and wide for the coach who made a great call or the person who was the investor that saw around the corner, the military officer who saw it coming the whole time. We also see it in reverse. Communication blunders lead to dumpster fires at work. Misunderstandings lead to broken relationships and small mistakes, if placed well, detonate into a world of hurt. 
but it's not just out there in the world. Think about your life. How much mental energy goes into responding when the girl you're interested in responds to you? Or when your child is struggling and needs some help? Or a doctor lays out a couple alternatives and it's up to you to make the choice which one you want to proceed with. You face a big choice with material pros and material cons. The examples are almost endless. Think of all the trails of thought, the hours of conversation you've spent in your life trying to rightly respond to what's in front of you. That's because responding rightly is valuable whereas responding wrongly can lead to trouble. And so we spend ourselves trying to respond in a way that leads to joy and blessing rather than a world of hurt. How do you respond to what God puts in front of you? More specifically, how do you respond when God puts his very own son, Jesus, in front of you? That's what our passage is about this morning. Please open your Bibles if you're not there to Romans chapter 12. This morning's text falls at the pivot point of the whole book of Romans. The first 11 chapters explain who Jesus is and what he did. The topography is pretty dramatic. There are some big weighty words like justification and propitiation and reconciliation that are thrown around. There's also some short, punchy words like sin and death and wrath. What is the intersection of all these different words? It's no one else besides Jesus Christ, God's anointed king and man's condemned and crucified criminal. The two verdicts honestly couldn't be further apart. Yet it's in this very fork in the road that distinguishes between heaven and hell for every man and woman. The dilemma of how to respond to Jesus is not just a question for a church in Caesar's backyard. It's a question for you today. How do you respond to Jesus? Our text has the answer. Let's read it together. Romans chapter 12 verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. 
you'll notice that our passage begins with, I appeal to you, therefore. Therefore draws a conclusion that comes from the first 11 chapters. Leading up to this point, the primary thrust of the book has been declarative. It's an explanation of who Jesus is and what he has done. Paul is mostly making statements about Jesus' identity and his accomplishment. Things like Jesus descending from David according to the flesh and being declared the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. But here is where Paul shifts to telling us what to do. Here is where the letter shifts from the indicative to the imperative. The sequence matters. Paul outlines what Jesus has done before he commands what we should do. Indicatives about what God has done must precede any imperatives of what we should do. We're not about moralism here. We are about rightly responding to the most significant act of spiritual warfare and rescue in the history of the world. The righteous king of heaven came down to save sinners. And so, it's unignorable news. That fork in the road is before you today. At a macro level, our passage is a transition between explaining Jesus theologically and responding to Jesus practically. And so the text has two helpful commands that the Apostle Paul gives us in light of all Jesus has done for us. So if you look in verse 1, it says, I appeal to you. And then look over in verse 3, it says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Those two exhortations are going to be our two points for today. So here's the practical question we're going to answer. Jesus has done amazing things for you. How do you faithfully respond to him? God gives the answer plain and straight. The Bible does not leave this to guesswork. How do you faithfully respond to Jesus? Point number one, you offer your body. This will come from verses one and two. And second, you serve his body. This will come from verses three to eight. So how do you faithfully respond to Jesus? You offer your body and you serve his body. As we walk through this passage together, I pray that God will win our wholehearted devotion to him and he will enliven us to spiritually strengthen one another in this church through humble service. So y'all ready? Y'all are gonna have to talk back to me. Y'all ready? All right, all right, good. How do you faithfully respond to Jesus? Point number one, you offer your body. Jesus offered his body to God for you on the cross. So what does Paul ask Christians to do in response? Well, it's nothing short of wholehearted devotion to Jesus. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. All throughout the Old Testament, God's people would show up at the tabernacle or at the temple so as to offer sacrifices on the altar of God. And when they would do that, they would bring that beast to the priest and they would lay their hand on it and they would transfer their iniquity to the sacrifice. 
And then the priest would then slay the beast, pouring out its blood at the base of the altar, showing that death had been paid for sin. And then the priest would butcher and then roast over flames the sacrifice, sending up both a pleasing aroma, our grillers say amen, and also sending the sacrifice heavenward. In the Levitical sacrificial system, different offerings had different purposes. Many provided atonement for sins, and some were expressions of devotion to God. But all sacrifices demonstrated ultimate allegiance, whether to false idols or to the true and living God of heaven. What does it mean to present your bodies as a living sacrifice? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you can just show up at the house of God, do some religious rituals, and you'll be good with God. It's more than that. If you're going to faithfully respond to Jesus, you need to know the cost of following him. His invitation calls you to come and die, to put your life on God's altar. This is not about purposefully harming yourself at all. It's about purposefully submitting to God no matter what it costs you. To present your body as a sacrifice to God is more than just giving up the physical side of you. It's about giving all of you. Your body is the venue where your internal heart and the outside world collide. And so to give your body to God is to submit your entire life to live not according to your own pleasure, but according to God's pleasure. What part of your life do you least want God to touch? Your resistance might be a hint of what it means for you to offer your body to God as a sacrifice. God does not just want part of you. He wants all of you. Presented to him of a, as a sacrifice of worship and devotion. And every sacrifice in the Bible dies. To follow Jesus' call is to come and die. Christianity is a religion that will cost you greatly. Some opportunities have the sky as the limit, but if you follow Jesus, your religion has nothing less than the grave as the limit. Are you willing to follow Jesus there? I think if we're honest with ourselves, in each of us, there is a man or woman that needs to die. It looks differently and comes out differently in each of us. For some of us, it shows up in our words. The way that we talk to or about people is just straight up shameful. And sometimes it's not even what we say, but how we say it. We prove that our tongues really are set on fire by the flames of hell. For others of us, it comes out in where we go. Our GPS proves it. It follows us and tracks us to places that we have no business being and venues that feed our flesh. Places that objectify people and sell escapes or breed irresponsibility. We can follow some of our wallets to hidden money trails that lead us to being dishonest with our spouses or with our employers. Our browsing histories go places that we'd never want associated with our name. 
So we think we can go incognito and forget that we are not accountable to an algorithm, but rather to the God who sees all. And that's to say nothing of our twisted desires, our selfish motives, and our tainted loves. Oh, there is much inside of us that needs to die, isn't there? We prove with our lives that we really are offspring of a fallen race, descendants of a forbidden fruit eater. We don't just need to die on the outside. We need to die on the inside. But friend, if you need to die on the inside, then Jesus Christ is the Savior for you. Paul is appealing by the mercies of God. To faithfully respond to Jesus, we must come and die. But death is not the end. Our text says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. From Genesis to Revelation, every sacrifice in the Bible dies. But we believe in the sacrifice that got up from the dead. Until Jesus, every sacrifice breathed its last. Death was final, but there had never been a sacrifice like Jesus. No animal ever had the dignity of man, and no man ever had the righteousness of God. Yet Jesus had both of them. Full humanity to die, and full righteousness to live again. His sacrifice is in a category all its own. He is the once and for all, never to be repeated, doesn't need to be repeated, sacrifice. His atoning sacrifice paves a way for all who lay down their lives in devotion to him to present our bodies as living sacrifices. He is the only sacrifice that can take away sins. Only he can provide atonement. And yet, It's as if he starts an entirely new sacrificial system of devotion to God, where those who follow after him come to lay our lives down on God's altar and say, Lord, slay me and raise me anew. To follow Jesus down into the grave is not optional. It's required of everyone to faithfully respond to him. What do we say when baptizing new converts? We take words from this very book, Romans 6, 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I hope you see that baptism is far more than just a religious ritual. Baptism does not save you, but it does accurately depict the salvation that God enacts. As a new sinner is taken down into the grave, trusting that God will supernaturally raise him up to life again. Ogletown, you are to guard those waters. It is your responsibility that everyone who is baptized here confesses Christ and has laid down their life in devotion to him. But don't just guard those waters. 
encourage people to get into them. Because we are the group of people that know that if you lay your life down in devotion to Jesus, God will raise you up again. If you don't follow Jesus, you need to know that you are made in the image of God, but you do not live like it. And God himself has declared that you must die and suffer wrath for that. Yet, in his mercy, God did not spare his very own son, but he freely gave him up as a sacrifice to pay for your sins. Your capital punishment before God was paid by another. Isn't that good news? That you might have a shield that would protect you from the wrath of God. And yet, it gets better because that advocate, that protector, he is not dead, but he is alive. That he was raised from the grave and he has ascended to heaven and is currently right now at the exact place that he would need to be to defend you before God. He is at God's right hand. And so if you want to belong to him, you need to come and die. You need to repent of your sins that lead to death. And you need to trust in the one who took those sins down into the grave and conquered them and was raised again in victory over them. And then what you need to do is you need to walk the gauntlet of jumping into those waters and being buried with Christ and being raised anew with him publicly in front of a church. The scripture says that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Offering your body and devotion to God is not just a thing for Christian fanatics or for pastors or for missionaries. It's for all of us. You cannot faithfully respond to Jesus without laying down your life for him. You must say, Lord, slay me and raise me up again. That is real worship. In the language of our text, that is your spiritual worship. A church is not just a Sunday social hour with some songs and a talk. That has no power. A real church is a gathering of God's people to worship, to bow down before God and confess, Lord, there is darkness inside of us. And yet, we will follow your son down into the grave and we will trust you to give us new life. That is Christianity. That is religion that must be confessed. That is spirituality that has objective power and that is what it means to faithfully respond to Jesus. And worship like that will change your life. Verse one gives us the way to die in response to Jesus. Verse number two gives us the way to live. Look at it together. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Following Jesus is both a world rebellion and a heavenly transformation wrapped into one. We have a contrast that negatively steers away from allowing to, for the world to shape us into conformity. 
and a positive commendation that we might be transformed, being renewed by the will of God. The contrast draws a line of opposition from a natural way to live in the world to a supernatural way to live that is out of this world. Now, in those terms, it's easy to say, yes, give me the supernatural stuff. But you and I walk around and we know what it's like to see the way of the world pay off for those who are around us and even our friends. It is not easy to choose the supernatural way. Mere common sense won't get you there. It will require supernatural power. Here are just a couple examples of some of how supernatural living might break into your ordinary life. A couple struggling to get pregnant throws a baby shower for a friend who's expecting. A senior couple who feels overlooked and a little bit overrun by the younger people in the church invites some 20-somethings over for lunch. A member who is loving Evan's sermon series on Ecclesiastes gives up his favorite part of Sunday in order to serve the kids of Oakledown. A young man steps back on campus after summer break and resolves to bounce his eyes rather than taking in the scenery on campus. A single woman who desires to get married volunteers to help set up for another girl's wedding day. A college student wakes up early to play Uber for an elderly widow who can't drive herself to early service, even when his friends are at the 11 o'clock. Holy living doesn't feel natural, because it isn't. But take heart, Christian. Your life is a display of God's supernatural power, transforming your life to align with his good pleasure. You have exchanged your allegiance to yourself or to another person, or to some fake God, to laying your life down in devotion to the God of heaven, the one who has a perfect and pleasing will. Holy living has more than just common sense in it. It has courage. Do you see how conformity with the world, it just leads to a generic life, That's why our evangelistic witness as a church is less tied to us smoothly fitting into the world and more tied to our distinctness from the world. It challenges generic living in conformity, creating a distinct life. Not everyone will notice that, but there will be some who do. And notice the direction of these two opposing ways to live. One caves into external pressure. The other pushes back from a strength that's within. Let me ask the question, which way to live is stronger? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the stronger way to live is actually to live pressing back against the pressures that this world puts on us. So the next time you obey God and you get some pushback for it, I want you to remember That if you are united to Christ, you are not being conformed to a generic life. You are being transformed to a supernatural one. We have exchanged our friendship with the world and rebellion against God for rebellion against the world and friendship with God. Don't expect the world to agree with you when you've sided against it. 
And whether you're in the frat house or the boardroom or on the pool deck, that if you actually press back against conformity with the world, you will receive opposition. And when you do, I want you to remember the two forces that are at play. One, this world is putting pressure on you to conform. And two, you are pressing back by the power of God. That's a dangerous way to live. It takes courage. But Christ can give you that courage. With Jesus at your side, are you willing to press back? Kids, ask your parents at lunch how following Jesus has made their life more dangerous. You might be surprised at how much courage you find living within your very own home. In church, as you rebel against conformity, remember where the power comes from. It might feel good to stick it to the world and think that we're something special. I can't believe they live like that. But the command to be transformed is passive. The scripture says, (laughs) be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We do not transform ourselves. God must do that work. We do the testing and the discerning. God does the changing. And he changes us to a better standard to evaluate life than acceptance by the world. Natural conformity is an impoverished life compared to supernatural transformation. Instead of becoming a generic human being who lives like everybody else, you actually live in a way that makes God smile. By the grace of God, press back, church. How do you faithfully respond to Jesus? Point number one, you offer your body. Like Jesus, you will die. And like Jesus, you will be raised to new life. Jesus remade you to point number two, serve his body. Faithfully responding to Jesus requires more than just me and Jesus doing our thing. Many people will say things like, I love God, but I'm not into organized religion. Or, you know, I'm very spiritual, but I don't go to church. People will go and do their favorite activity, especially out in nature, and they'll say, I went to my church today. Happened on a group text in my extended family earlier this month. The thing is, you can't do church by yourself. It fundamentally misunderstands the very word that we translate church means gathering, assembly. So there's no such thing as church by yourself. To speak like this fundamentally misunderstands what it means to be united to the body of Christ. But that's not the only problem. It's also an arrogant way to think about religion. Think about it. I love God, but I'm not into organized religion is a passive-aggressive way of saying, my self-invented way of worshiping God is better than your God-revealed way of worshiping him. I'm very spiritual, but I don't go to church 
stands over the church rather than submitting under it. You're accountable to no one in the way that you go to God. Y'all, that's pride. We are so prone to think of ourselves too highly. Our passage says, don't think like that. Look at verse three. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Far from believing that we can be independently capable of bringing God worship by ourselves, we are a group of people who help one another to look at our lives with sober judgment. Christianity is the humble way to offer true worship to God. Sober judgment of our lives pushes us to acknowledge our sins and our transgressions. We do not come self-justified on our merits. We come hidden in the merits of Jesus. We approach God under him, in his protection, and as those who were bought by him. And that's called grace. We come to worship God in the way of grace. That's how Paul starts out, isn't it? By the grace of God given to me. Paul is no hypocrite. We can look back in history and find him persecuting the church and killing people. And yet, here, he's instructing the church. It's clear that he is a recipient of grace far before ever commanding sober judgment. Paul acknowledges himself as a recipient of grace. And that's what the church is. A gathering of sinners with a sober judgment about our failures and a very high esteem for God's grace extended to us in Jesus. Our friends who think that they can head up to a mountain and bop into the throne room of heaven miss the point of Jesus. They are not faithfully responding to what he has done. Jesus had to die because we've defiled our lives before God, making us unfit for his presence. But Jesus rose in victory over our sins. So faithfully responding to Jesus acknowledges that we need him and he will cover us. We approach God with him, not pridefully without him. You don't need your authentic self to approach God. You need God's sin dealer and grace giver. Jesus is all you need to approach God. And yet without him, you are unfit for heaven's throne room. But with him, you are welcomed on merits not your own. Do not stand over God's guidance in Christ's church, but humble yourself. Turn and join your life with the body of Christ. Join us as recipients of grace who see our shortcomings and wrongs, but trust in an advocate who lives to intercede for us and is paid for our sins with his very own blood. Faithfully responding to Jesus has meaningful implications for you, both individually and corporately. When you are united to Christ individually, you receive a new corporate identity. You are united and wrapped into his body, the church. Look at verse four. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. 
the comparison is straightforward. It looks at a physical body. And that physical body has many members with different functions. In the same way, Christ's body, the church, is one spiritual body. But this body also has many members with different functions. The body is a unified one, and it is composed of a diversified many. My hand is not my eye, which is not my knee, but my eye, hand, and knee are all my body. So it is with the members of this church. We are unified, but not congruent. And that makes us stronger. That makes our care wider and our love deeper. It expands our reach and welcomes a greater range and a greater number of people. I understand that if there are some in this room who are uncomfortable with the ideas of churches having membership, it may feel elitist or a little bit country clubbish to you. And I just want to high five you for that instinct. If you don't want to hand out religious status symbols, but I also want to gently push back on how you're thinking about member. When the Bible talks about member, it's not treating the church as a club, but as a body. Being a member doesn't connect you with social events. It unites you to life together. That's the way that God designed it. Full transparency, church membership is intentionally exclusive. You cannot be a member of Christ's body unless you are united to him. You must be a certain kind of sinner, a repenting and trusting in Jesus kind of sinner to be united to this local body. But it cuts both ways. If you are repenting and trusting in Jesus sinner, you are not able to live your life detached from the body. That's not how God made it. Just think about it. If a finger was detached from the hand, it would lose both its function and its vitality. It's God's design for your own spiritual growth to be connected to the body. So if you're around church, but haven't yet joined and united yourself as a member to a local body, let me encourage you, unite yourself to this body. It, it honestly doesn't need to be this body, but you need to unite yourself to some body of local believers. Because a temporary season removed from the body isn't lethal, but it is dangerous. And if you don't, uh, if you don't join into the body, you're also missing out on so much life that the body can bring to you. If you want to respond to faithfully, Faithfully to Jesus, you must serve his body, and you cannot do that if you are detached from it. As a fellow struggler in the race of faith, let me also encourage you that there is life in the body. As we serve, everyone, not everyone's service will look the same, and that's a good thing. That is the way that it was made. That's on purpose. Let's finish our passage together. Look at verse 6. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Our passage 
concludes with an encouragement to use spiritual gifts in an appropriate and fitting manner. Every Christian is united to the body by the Holy Spirit. The church is a spiritual body. And every Christian receives spiritual gifts from God so as to build up that spiritual body. These gifts are supernatural tools to build up the spiritual life. But here's the surprise. Not everybody has the same toolbox. Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. God graciously gives different gifts to different members. And not only that, God graciously gives different gifts in different measures to different members. Now that creates ample opportunity for covetous comparison in spirituality. We just need to reject that. It also creates a reality of interdependence. We must serve one another with our spiritual gifts if we are to benefit from all God's spiritual gifts. I think that's why Paul's central clause in this one big long sentence that we just read is, let us use them. The point is, use them. Ogletown, use your spiritual gifts to build each other up. Don't get caught up in trying to identify your one spiritual gift. Uh, There's a whole industry out there with inventories and assessments trying to help you identify your one spiritual gift. I don't think that that's the best way. To, To start, I think individual Christians receive spiritual gifts, plural, not a spiritual gift, singular. Further, self-identifying spiritual gifts is an inherently flawed system. You do not identify your spiritual gift by sitting at a computer by yourself and answering questions on what you like to do. You discover your spiritual gifts by serving the body and watching how God supernaturally uses you to build others up spiritually. Just look at the list. Service, generosity, teaching, acts of mercy. You don't serve yourself, you serve others. You do these things to build up others. So what are some of the ways that you've served someone and you've seen them grow spiritually? Take that as a hint from God. Spiritual fruit around you in the lives of others is just not natural stuff that pops up. God is behind it. See it as a little trail. And go explore, church. Teach one another. Serve one another. Prophesy to one another. To prophesy is to rightly interpret God's divine will. In the words of verse 2 of our passage, to discern by testing what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There are some of you in this room who are divinely gifted to do that that is valuable stuff dig into that but don't try to do it all there is no prototype christian who gets all the gifts evan doesn't have all the gifts i don't have all the gifts deepak doesn't have all the gifts wayne doesn't have all the gifts nobody has all the gifts and so what that means is that the gifts are spread not just to the pastors, not just to the church staff, but across the entire congregation, which means every one of us needs one another if we're going to experience the full spiritual life that we desire. 
faithfully responding to Jesus means humbly serving his body with spiritual gifts that God himself has given. And that's a joy. Jesus has done great things for us. How do we faithfully respond to him? Well, first, offer your body. Let the old you that loves sin and self come to die. And God will raise you up to new life that reflects his pleasure. And then, serve Christ's body, his church. Don't think of yourself too highly leading you to stand above the church and his people. Rather, unite yourself as a member of a wider body that works together to show off the love of Christ using spiritual gifts, not to show off, but to serve. If you respond like this, Ogletown Baptist Church will not be the flashiest church. It will not be the talk of the town, but it will be a place where the greatest love this world has ever known breaks into reality. And if the Son of God would come down from heaven and offer his body to make this possible, then I am confident saying that you offering your body and serving his body is not beneath you. In fact, I'd argue it's the highest privilege of your life. It is what you were born again for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to you under the protection of Jesus who offered his body to pay for our sins. Father, give us courage to offer our bodies in devotion to him. Use every member of this body to build up your body. We ask you to lavish Ogletown with spiritual gifts. And may we use those gifts to serve you and to serve one another for the glory of your son in this city and among the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.